The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 76 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 71, Endgame. This week's issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Sal Busema, inks by Sam Granger, letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in December of 1969. Starting off with our cover, this is a great looking cover, although I have to admit it does spoil the big twist reveal of the book just a little bit. Having said that though, the colors are really nice, the detail is wonderfully done, and I especially like the skyline behind the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower itself is also very nice, it's very well done, but there is a large amount of detail in the skyline that really doesn't need to be there, but it's a nice touch and it really sells the location of Paris. Deep within the bowels of Garrett Castle, we find Black Knight rushing to ignite the Brazier of Truth in hopes of speaking with the spirit of Sir Percy, his ancestor and the original Black Knight, in an attempt to discover what exactly has happened to the Avengers following the events of last issue that Black Knight witnessed in London. Now, this is a really nice, very well done opening splash page. Black Knight is showing an appropriate amount of urgency given the situation. I also really like the look of the brazier and the burning coals down in the front where we have the creator credits. Also, the shadows in this are very well done, that a lot of portions of this building of this castle are in shadow, and I think it looks really, really strong. Admittedly here, though, I am uncertain as to what the Black Knight thinks that Sir Percy can do about all of this, but playing devil's advocate, I'm also not really sure what other options Black Knight has at this point. He really doesn't have much else to work with. Now, when Black Knight summons Sir Percy, there is a pretty cool effect used to make Sir Percy look very ethereal. And I would love to know how this effect is achieved. Obviously, some of it is through the inking and the coloring, but it's a slightly washed out kind of look. And I would love to know how this is done. So although Sir Percy is scornful of the Black Knight for being really rather impatient, he begins to fill his successor in on the events that occurred in the 41st century, which led to what he saw in London. On top of that, Black Knight is filled in that the fight he interrupted was really only one part of four in the Grandmaster's game, which pitted the Avengers against the Squadron Sinister. Unfortunately for Black Knight, he unwittingly disrupted the final of those four battles, and as a result, Grandmaster removed all the combatants for a final round to determine the result of the game. So here I get that Sir Percy needs to explain to Black Knight what's going on, because that's a necessary element within the story. However, I don't think that you and I as the reader really need a full recap 
of last issue. It's only been a month, and I find it to be a bit of a waste of page space, unfortunately. Now, obviously, our story is running in multiple points in time, so returning to the 41st century, we find Kang wandering through the corridors of his headquarters and really pining over his lost love, Ravana, who is trapped between life and death, as Kang puts it. He phrases it specifically, for months she has stood like this, not dead, yet strangely not alive. And while Kang is at the feet of the pedestal where Ravana is residing, he really rededicates himself to his cause of bringing her back to life. And he becomes more determined than ever to beat Grandmaster's game. Kang here is extremely tormented by Ravana's current condition. And I like the fact that he is using a visit to her as a way to fuel the drive in himself. Kang does this very intentionally. He knows why he's involved in this game and he takes steps to reinforce his will to succeed. In this case, Kang's being very manipulative, not of anyone else, although he's certainly manipulative of the Avengers within this story arc. But in this case, he's manipulating himself. He knows exactly what it will take to get him to do what he knows needs to be done to be successful. And he intentionally puts himself in a situation to drive exactly that kind of behavior. I also really like that Ravana is on this platform above Kang. In a lot of ways, it makes her very statuesque very unachievable, unobtainable. It also physically elevates her above Kang, so that Kang is this impressive, time-dominating conqueror, and yet when it comes to Ravana, he is weak, he is at her mercy. He's not the conqueror, he is submissive, supplicant, and that's a very interesting way to look at a character like Kang. It's a twist on how we normally view that character. So having steeled his resolve, Kang makes his way back to his control room and he dials in his vid screen so that he may watch the final round against Grandmaster's champions. And while he's doing this, Kang starts to question Grandmaster about his replacement champions because as we saw last issue, all of Kang's original champions, the Squadron Sinister, were defeated. And Grandmaster informs Kang that he will see them soon enough. Now, based on the end of last issue, where the Grandmaster transported the Squadron Sinister and the Avengers away, I had assumed that the contest would still be among the same group of characters, the same Avengers and the Squadron Sinister. Now, obviously, based on the way this scene starts to set up, that's not going to be the case. And it's going to be a little bit before we find out at least what happened to the Avengers. We don't really ever find out what happens to the Squadron Sinister. They just kind of get removed from the story, which is unfortunate, but I understand it. They were obviously a Justice League ripoff, and you can only kind of play that one out for a limited amount of time before it gets a little bit goofy. Back in the 20th century, the remaining three Avengers that did not participate suddenly find themselves standing in front of the Louvre in Paris, which is flying a Nazi flag. Yes, Nazis, the traditional comic book villain, as well as first-person shooters. Unfortunately, you know, Nazis are like zombies. They're fine in little doses, at least in my opinion, but they are just far too overused in general in comics and video games. It's just one of those cultural touchstones 
that we use Nazis as villains like this, but we need to find other villains. So Vision identifies that himself, Yellow Jacket, and Black Panther have been transported back into the middle of World War II. But before the Avengers can really come to grips with what's going on around them, they're attacked by several Nazi soldiers. Obviously, a handful of SS guards really aren't a match for any amount of superheroes, but the Avengers soon find out that these soldiers are not the only foes in the immediate vicinity. As they finish off the last of the soldiers, emerging from a portal nearby is the Human Torch, Namor, and Captain America, just as they had looked back in 1941. So as their future teammate and his allies don't recognize the Avengers, they attack, assuming that these three costumed individuals are in fact allied with the Nazis that are currently inhabiting Europe. Thankfully, in this scenario, the Nazis don't stay the primary antagonist for very long. Picking these three heroes, though, I find is an interesting choice. All three are very powerful. Black Panther and Captain America are a pretty even match. Namor easily beats Yellow Jacket. But the most interesting of these three pairings is Vision against the Human Torch. Although it has yet to be established canonically in the comics, we as modern comic readers know that the Vision is built from the body of the Human Torch. So effectively, they are fighting themselves. Albeit, Vision has had some slight modifications and has a pretty different power set than the Human Torch. Generally speaking, I would put the two of them at pretty even, although given Vision's updates and his power set, I'm inclined to give Vision a bit of an edge in this fight. But altogether, for a three-on-three -three superhero fight, this is a pretty balanced match with maybe the weight being on the side of the invaders. It's also worth pointing out that this is actually the first time we see these three heroes teaming up during World War II. They will not actually get a team name until giant-sized invaders, and later on in Invaders Annual Number 1, we will actually see this fight from the perspective of the invaders and it fills us in a little bit because Captain America's using his original shield and Namor's in his original swim trunks so it goes back and it fills us in as to why these characters are using this equipment when in 1941 at the time they would have been using other equipment so it, it goes back and it fills in the continuity gap there a little bit. Returning to modern England for a moment, Black Knight continues his search for a way in which he can help the Avengers because he really wants to make up for the mistake that he committed at the end of last issue. So Sir Percy does what is available to him, what is within his powers, and puts Black Knight in astral contact with his ancestral sword, the Ebony Blade. If you remember back from last issue, just as the fight was wrapping up and Grandmaster transported the Avengers away, the Ebony Blade was taken from Black Knight by Goliath as Goliath was berating Black Knight for getting involved. So right now the Ebony Blade is in the 41st century. And once Sir Percy puts the Black Knight in this astral contact with it, the Ebony Blade actually pulls Black Knight through time and space and drops him off in the 41st century. Now there's a really great panel here of Black Knight traveling to the future. I just wish it were a little bit bigger. Okay, fine. I wish it were a full splash page because there's a lot of really cool and weird Marvel cosmic stuff going on in the background and I would love to see a full page spread of that. I think it'd be really, really cool looking. So Black Knight finds himself 
in front of the four Avengers from last issue, specifically Captain America, Goliath, Thor, and Iron Man. And they're seemingly trapped in some kind of dreamlike state with these kind of weird spheres, halos around them, keeping them out of consciousness. And as Black Knight starts to try and get his bearings, he's attacked by several of Kang's guards. Again, being the superhero that he is, and now being reunited with his weapon, Black Knight makes pretty quick work of the attackers, and then makes his way out of the chamber and stumbles upon Wasp in the process. At this point, Wasp enlists the help of Black Knight in order to rescue the Avengers in hopes that they have a chance at winning this fight. At this point, the Avengers are being held against their will, so they really need to escape from what's going on. Now, of course, how fortunate, you know, that Black Knight arrives exactly where the Avengers are being kept. It's very, very convenient for Black Knight. This scene also implies that Kang is the one keeping the Avengers. But at the end of last issue, the transporting away implied that Grandmaster was really the one who was in control and kind of pulling the strings. It's not so much that things couldn't have happened in the middle there, but this scene sets up a little bit of a subtle shift in who is the villain in this issue going from the Grandmaster to Kang. And I think it's very cleverly done. It's very subtle. And if you don't stop and think about how these pieces put together, you really don't pick up on it. It just seamlessly flows from one to the other. I'd also like to point out that although he does it because he hears Wasp's voice through the wall, Black Knight smashes his way through a wall. And I feel like there is probably a better way for him to get around and to Wasp's location, especially since there's only a few people who know he's there and they're now unconscious. He still has secrecy in the element of surprise, but smashing your way through a wall is typically not a very subtle, very secretive way of getting around somewhere. Lastly, I'm still a little curious why Wasp is wearing this overcoat over her costume. I mean, maybe she is very fond of the coat and doesn't want to take it off and inadvertently leave it in the 41st century. But at the same time, I feel like an overcoat like this would limit her mobility and her ability to effectively fight when the time comes. Back in 1941, the Avengers are facing off against the contemporary heroes. And although Cap and Namor match up well against Black Panther and Yellow Jacket, respectively, and obviously, as I mentioned, I think Namor has a leg up on Yellow Jacket, Vision proves really quite difficult for the invaders to defeat and ultimately is the key to the Avengers' victory. There is some back and forth in the fight, but eventually Vision is able to line up all three of the invaders and phases through them, becoming solid just long enough to disrupt the trio and leave them beaten. They aren't really beaten in the normal superhero sense of the word. They're really just moderately incapacitated for a short period. I do kind of find this a little lame as a means of ending what amounts to a fairly major confrontation. Not so much this fight specifically, but the larger story arc of the game between Grandmaster's champions and Kang's champions. There's also a really great moment in here where Black Panther recognizes that the Avengers have been unconsciously pulling their punches and tells the team that they need to stop doing this if they have any chance of saving Earth. Because remember, that's the stakes that are on the line here. If Kang wins, 
he gets the power over life and death. If Grandmaster wins, he's going to destroy the Earth. So I really like Black Panther's situational awareness and the willingness he has to do what needs to be done based on the consequences. Under normal circumstances, I think Black Panther would continue to act as he had been. But knowing what was at stake and kind of the Star Trek idea of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, Black Panther is willing to do what is required of him in order to save the Earth as a whole. So with the defeat of Grandmaster's champions, Kang takes a moment and celebrates his victory. Grandmaster decides that since the first round was a stalemate, although I will be fair, I don't understand how he would come to that conclusion, he decides to grant Kang the power over either life or death. As the Grandmaster puts it, half a prize for half a victory. As Kang contemplates his choice, the recently freed Avengers, along with Black Knight, arrive in the control room. Now, the Avengers admit that Kang helped save Earth, although in large part Kang is also responsible for the Earth being in peril in the first place, but... Kang has really helped save Earth. So because of this, the Avengers are willing to just go back to their own time and leave Kang alone, more or less as a thank you for doing this. Kang, however, is unwilling to let the Avengers go, as he still considers them to be his most dangerous enemy. So Kang once again demands that Grandmaster grant him the power over both life and death. Grandmaster refuses, and so Kang makes a really, what I feel is impulsive decision, and demands the power over death so that he can kill the Avengers. This is a major WTF moment for Kang. Like, seriously, WTF. All Kang has to do is send the Avengers back to their own time, and he can literally have exactly what he wanted. His entire reason for getting involved with the Grandmaster was to bring Ravana back. Instead, Kang lets his desire for vengeance against the Avengers completely take over in an act of insane self-sabotage. At this point, there is no way for things to work out well for Kang. So with his new powers, Kang is able to fend off the Avengers with no effort. All of their attacks bounce harmlessly off of him. Even Mjolnir passes straight through Kang, which I think is a really cool effect and shows exactly how powerful Kang is in this particular moment. Kang becomes no longer amused with just watching his foes hurl themselves at him helplessly and uses his new power to bring the Avengers within a hair's breadth of death. They are barely clinging to life, writhing on the ground in agony, and Kang takes a moment to gloat over his defeated foes, but is interrupted by Black Knight, who, because he's not an Avenger, is unaffected by Kang's new powers, because Kang wanted these powers to defeat the Avengers. So we have our loophole, because Black Knight, although often an Avengers ally, is not actually an Avenger. For about a page and a half more. So Kang's new powers don't have an effect on him, and Black Knight is able to harm Kang. In a lot of ways here, Grandmaster is reminding me of the bureaucrats from Futurama, where Black Knight is the only one able to affect Kang because he's not an Avenger. This is technically correct, which, again, according to the bureaucrats, is the best kind of correct. Black Knight takes his ebony blade and knocks Kang senseless with the flat of the blade, in large part redeeming himself 
with the very act that initially put him into this situation in the first place. I would really like to know, though, why Black Knight keeps using the flat edge of his blade. If you've got a sword, you should be using the edge. And as a knight, there are plenty of other blunt weapons he could be using, many of which are thematically appropriate if he really wants to use a blunt or bludgeoning weapon as opposed to a edged weapon like a sword. It just seems like a poor use of a sword. So with Kang defeated, Grandmaster departs and returns the Avengers to their mansion in their own time. The Avengers express their gratitude to Black Knight for helping them and in general for being a very frequent ally by bestowing on him the honor of membership in the Avengers, which Black Knight warmly accepts as really a reserve member, talking about the fact that his home is in England, but he'll respond whenever the Avengers need him. And our issue concludes with a team, including their new member, celebrating with a vigorous Avengers Assemble. Now, I will admit, until reading this issue, I didn't realize that this is when Black Knight became an Avenger. I knew he was a more consistent part of the team down the road, and in fact, quite a ways down the road, but I didn't realize he would become an official member of the team at this point. Again, obviously he'll stay as a reserve member for a long time, but as we see here, the Avengers are slowly expanding the team and helping fill in those reserve ranks, eventually leading to, I think, one of the best runs of Avengers and one of the more interesting things of Avengers, which was the Jonathan Hickman Rings of Avengers, denoting the, the different graduations of active membership. Also, who doesn't love a good Jonathan Hickman infographic? Overall, this was not a bad issue. I think the conclusion could have done with a little bit more energy, maybe a little more drama to it, but I would certainly say this was not a disappointment in the way they ended the three-part story here. I think it was a better ending than the last three-part story arc we got, so that's always a plus. I like that the Avengers have once again shown their magnanimous attitude when they're talking to Kang and they just want to be sent home, right? The Avengers have realized that Kang has helped them here and that they can part on relatively friendly terms. On the other side of that, Kang's betrayal, while not surprising, is kind of disappointing. He could have gone in a much different direction, still been a villain, but gotten Ravana back. Now, the one nice thing is he maintains Ravana as a motivation, so there's still that driving force behind Kang, which I think is a very good one, a very interesting one for Kang. But he had her salvation in his hands, and he threw it away. Finally, I very much enjoyed, and I think it's very interesting, the fight with Vision and Human Torch. Obviously, I have the hindsight of modern knowledge and future retcons. Certainly at the time, that was never intended in any way, shape, or form, but I like that it provides additional context to the eventual retcon that occurs, and we get to see these two characters facing off against one another. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Next week, we are going to be taking a look at Avengers number 72, Did You Hear the One About Scorpio? All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. You ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it. <laughs>